right at the beginning of his public ministry, and you see him healing people left and right. You see uh, uh, him calling his disciples. You see him telling parables. You see him calming storms. And now we arrive at Mark 5. You see, uh, we arrive here at maybe the most descriptive and definitely the most strange account of Jesus' work yet. So grab a Bible, open up to Mark 5 with me. Mark chapter 5. If you don't have one, please raise your hand. We'd love to give you a Bible. And if you'd like to take this one home, you're welcome to keep it. So Mark chapter 5, if you don't have a Bible, the one that we're handing out, it's on page 579. It should be up on the screen there. So Mark chapter 5. We're going to be looking at an account of Jesus interacting with a man who is demon-possessed. And as we look at this passage... The one thing I want you to see from our text this morning is this. A transformed life proves the authority of Jesus and it puts God's mercy on display. Okay, that's what we're going to see. So so a transformed life proves the authority of Jesus and puts God's mercy on display. Now we're going to tackle this passage in two different parts. We're actually going to read them separately. So let's read the first section of this account. This is Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 1. We will read through verse 13. What we're going to see in this first section is that Jesus has the ultimate authority. All right, Mark 5, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send him out of the country. Now a herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, Jesus saying, send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out. And entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. All right, that's where we'll stop. Now, Jesus and his disciples had landed there on the east shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was an area that was largely pasture, okay? It was these rolling grassy hills. It's very beautiful there. And uh, there were some Greek cities a little bit farther east, but the area where they landed was fairly secluded and there wasn't much going on there. But here, there was a man who was roaming around and was demonized. And we see this encounter between Jesus and this man. Now, as we dive into this story... I want to stop here because I think we need to make sure that we're all on the same page. I think we need to acknowledge that this account actually happened. That demonic activity is actually real. 
We can't rationalize it away or try and find a generic spiritual lesson from a text like this. Passages like Mark 5 are, are challenging for us Westerners today because we have a, a worldview that has significantly turned down the volume on anything that's spiritual or immaterial. We're, we're taught to have a, a, a view of the world that the unseen things with a heavy skepticism, or in many cases told that the spiritual realm is, is, is just fiction. But the Bible tells us that God's creation is both a heavenly realm and an earthly realm. Things that are invisible and things that are visible. And, and, and if you think about it, even you as a human being, the Bible describes you as a, a body and a soul. A union of material and immaterial. You see, the, the Bible would be almost unintelligible without an understanding of a reality that combines the seen and the unseen things. Okay, take, for example, this passage. It'll be up on the screen. This is Colossians 1, 15 to 16. This is a hymn possibly that the early church sang. And it says this about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. This passage is oozing with a, a reality, a view of reality that combines the material and the spiritual realms. And all of that is God's creation. So when we uh, approach a passage like this where, where demonic activity is assumed, we should be careful not to sort of here we are in 2016, right, arrogantly rationalize this as, as, as people who were simply a product of their unenlightened ancient Near Eastern world. Let me ask you this. Would you really claim to know more than Jesus about spiritual things? I certainly hope not. Instead, I, I, I think I would, I would ask that we would gain a biblical view and acknowledge that God's creation consists of both a spiritual realm and an earthly realm. And these two, these two realms together, and it, as an integrated whole, make up reality. And if we don't, I, I'm afraid we'll end up living in a world like what uh, influential sociologist Peter Berger from the last couple generations here, he, he calls that a world without windows. In other words, in, in other words it's, it's like we've boxed ourselves into a room where we aren't able to see anything beyond the walls that we can touch and observe. But, but I love this metaphor, and the beauty of it is that instead, there, if you look through the windows, you could see an entire world that has fresh air and sunshine and a world that is complex and awe-inspiring and beautiful. But we often try to board up the windows in our advanced modern mind. Here's why this is important. Okay, God's creation is both material and immaterial. 
you as a human being are both material and immaterial. But, but mo most importantly, Jesus himself is both material and immaterial. He was the God who took on flesh. So listen carefully. You will never be fully human. You, you'll never actually be able to be like Jesus, or you'll never actually understand God's creation and his created order without embracing the fact that a spiritual realm exists and is real. And a, a passage like Mark 5, it makes it very clear that there's a lot at stake in the spiritual realm. Okay, there are powers of darkness that want to destroy you. And we can't afford to ignore that. Nor, honestly, can we afford to overemphasize it either. Um, C.S. Lewis, who cautioned us um, in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which I think we've mentioned before, um, he, he cautioned saying these words. It'll be up on the screen. He said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence, and the other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist and the magician with the same delight. Wow. So let's approach this passage, like Mark, uh, Mark 5, understanding that the spiritual realm is real and that demons are active today. We have much to learn as rational Westerners because this doesn't come natural to us. Okay, let's dive into the account and see what was going on here, these first 13 verses. Now, we see this interaction between Jesus and this demon-possessed man. I want to highlight two different things that are going on. Okay, first thing is that this man shows us what demonic activity does to somebody. Now, this was an extreme case, for sure. But the reality is that any influence of evil will result in similar issues going on. So take a look back at those first five verses with me. We're going to kind of work our way and skim our way down through these first five verses. This man, and this sort of describes who he is, this man was living among the tombs, it says. In other words, he was unclean, living in filth. Okay, he lived literally with the decaying bodies of people. He was isolated from his family and friends. We also see that he had these crazy episodes of rage and was able to do unnatural things like break shackles and chains. We also see that he was tormented. Okay, he was restless and disturbed. It also mentions that he's, he's violent, he's cutting himself, he's likely trying to kill himself. And, and lastly, we notice this duality of personality, like he's, he's possessed and that demons are somehow in his inner being or residing in him. Folks, I, I believe that when there is evil and demonic influence, even today, it will result in things like this, filthy and immoral or sinful living. Isolation from family and friends, cutting off of relationships, intense anger or rage or, or restlessness and torment emotionally, 
violence tendencies or maybe this personality or struggle that's going on in your inner being. That is definitely not how God made us to live. Now, again, this was an extreme case. It's possible to have the influence of evil and of demons and not manifest the same type of extreme behavior. And in fact, I believe that there's activity like this more common. It's more common than we think, and we just don't know what to call it. I want to tell you a story. I recall an encounter that I had about 10 years ago with some type of demonic activity. I was sleeping in the floor of the basement of my friend's house, and it was a few friends and I. We were, uh, had our sleeping bags all laid out, and we were staying overnight at somebody's house. And I woke up in the middle of the night to hear a friend of mine had sat up in his sleeping bag and was, was breathing heavily, was shouting, and was clenching his fists. And I thought he was having a nightmare. So that's the first logical thing maybe to think. So I, I went to go try and wake him up or figure out what was going on, and I got close to him and felt this presence of something evil and a coldness that I could barely describe, and I felt a sense of a struggle going on. Now, another friend also woke up because he heard what was going on, and we sort of looked at each other in disbelief. I had no idea, and were super confused what was going on. He looked at me, and he just said, I think we should pray sounded like a good idea. I started praying and I could feel this struggle in the spiritual sense going on as I was praying. But here's where it got a little strange. It turned into a physical struggle of some kind. So I I went to go pray for this friend and I put my hand on him and he grabbed my arm and I grabbed his arm back and pushed his head down on the floor and pinned his arms under my leg. I'm not kidding. So for, four, for three or four minutes, I, push, I put my hand on his head and prayed for him and invoked the name of Jesus to deliver him from whatever evil thing was doing this. And, and as I was saying the name of Jesus, after, after these three or four minutes of doing this, he snapped out of it. And he, he, he laid still and he opened his eyes and he looked at me and he said, what are you doing? He said, why are you holding me down? What happened is, right at that moment, the room felt warm and, and totally different. It was calm. I and my other friend who was watching this entire thing in disbelief, he and I both saw in that moment that my friend snapped out of it, a dark and shadowy figure go by the window of the basement and go away from the house. Okay, crazy. Needless to say, we were all pretty freaked out. I had no idea what to do there. We didn't sleep the whole rest of the night. We just sat there and <laughs> talked about it. And I don't know what exactly to call that experience, whether demon possession or influence or something evil was going on. There was something strange there and a power that was, that was there. But I think when we think about these types of examples or stories, we have to recognize, I believe in Scripture, we see a difference between demon possession and influence. Okay, demon possession is when uh, uh, an evil spirit has taken residence in your inner being. 
Now listen closely. This cannot happen if you have the Holy Spirit. The home is already occupied. But I think demonic influence can happen to anyone, and I'd wager that we experience this more than we realize. So here's a question for you this morning. Do you feel the grip of evil in your life in some way? Have you descended into a, 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 a filthy and unclean pattern of living or a pattern of sin? Are you isolated, cut off from the people you love? Uh, are, are you overcome by an intense anger or rage or a feeling of constant restlessness and despair? Or are you, maybe differently, enjoying your prideful and selfish living and even rolling your eyes at the idea of needing God? You might need to be delivered from the influences of evil. And if this is you, hang on to that thought because we're going to have a time of prayer later this morning. And maybe you need to be prayed for today. Maybe the the Holy Spirit is prompting you that you need to ask for help and that you need to be healed. Now, the, the second thing that we see from these first 13 verses is that Jesus has incredible power and authority. Okay, listen to this. This demonized man who was portrayed in a way that is incredibly scary... Uh, uh, it should scare you. It scares me. Okay, think about him. If you encountered this guy near the Sea of Galilee, he was running around screaming, cutting himself, and he has superhuman strength. That would freak me out. But look at what happens when Jesus steps off of that boat. Immediately, the man runs towards Jesus, and verse 6 says that he fell down at his feet. He says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? It's the same thing we've seen already in the Gospel of Mark. It is demons and those those evil spirits that are the first ones, because they know the truth, to recognize and to name Jesus' real name and his title and his authority. Do you see the contrast here with this man? He could not be bound by anyone. He would break chains and shackles like they were made of aluminum foil, okay? But Jesus did nothing but stand there. And this man bows at his feet in submission. No chains or shackles necessary. Just the the presence of Jesus and his limitless divine authority makes these demons cower in fear and beg for his mercy and to not torment them. So Jesus looks him straight in the eye and he says, what's your name? (laughs) Now, it was widely understood in that day that finding the real name of an evil spirit gave you power over them. So the response from this man, though, is strange. He says, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, you see, a a legion was the term used in a Roman military sense of a a dispatch of of soldiers that numbered about 5,000. 5,000. 
So this was not just one demon, but potentially thousands. That's even scarier. Now here's where it gets strange, if it wasn't already. The verbs and pronouns in this passage switch from, in the middle of the story, from singular to plural. As the man is speaking, there seems to be a confusion and a struggle of who's in control and who's talking to Jesus. First it's the man, then it's the demons who are, who are speaking. There's, a, there's this duality of person or of the inner being of this man and a struggle going on. But what happens is that when these demons realize that, that they are powerless in the presence of Jesus, they beg him to let them go into a herd of pigs. They grovel at his feet. The ones who were causing this man to have incredible strength and, and controlling him, they, 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 they grovel at Jesus' feet. And notice what Jesus does. He doesn't, even have to, he doesn't really have to do anything to get these demons out of this man. Verse 13 simply says, He gave them permission. Okay, these powerful, evil spirits numbering the thousands have to ask Jesus' permission to do something. Wow. So Jesus allowed them to enter these pigs and run them down a hill and to the water. And there's, there's, there's a lot I could say about that, but let me just summarize in two points why Jesus would do that. Some think that Jesus let the demons go into those pigs and drown them as a sign that indeed, to the man, that the demons were gone. Are you, you have any doubt that the demons are not in you anymore? See, there they go, right down the hill. Boom. Gone. Or, and maybe, maybe in addition to, you could also say that Jesus was, was using that in a way to send those demons into the abyss where they belonged. Down they go, in a spiritual sense, right into the water. So in the, this account here, the beginning of this, we see an incredible power and authority of Jesus because this wild and sort of Hulk-like man who was possessed by a legion of demons simply fell at the feet of Jesus and begged for mercy. That's crazy. Now, let's see what happens next. The second part of this passage is starting in verse 14. We're going to see that God's mercy is put on display through this transformation of this guy. So, starting in verse 14, let's read again the text here. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but he said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Now, we need to see the, the utter transformation of this man in these verses here. 
there were three features that are mentioned of his new state, okay? He is now sitting, he is clothed, and he's in his right mind. Okay, it says he was clothed. It didn't necessarily say earlier he was naked, but apparently he was. That would be a little bit scary or weird too, a guy running around breaking chains and naked, right? But now he's here sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. Now, he had just been screaming and running around and cutting himself and under the control of demons. And in every way now, he has been changed. The, the reversal is shocking to people. But listen, that is not the only reversal that's going on. The people at the beginning of this story... Those townspeople were afraid of the demon-possessed man, and rightly so. He was scary. But at the end of verse 15, it says that they are now afraid of Jesus. I think that this is exactly what happens when you misunderstand the authority and power of Jesus. Instead of being drawn to him, sitting at his feet, and desiring to go with him wherever he goes, many people, today even, many people are more comfortable to live with the evil of this world because at least they understand it. Jesus is too radical. He's too powerful. He, 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 his claims are too exclusive. He will demand your whole life. And that is exactly what causes people to fear him and want him to leave instead of love him and be near him. But look at that man who was possessed. I love this. The text says that he's now in his right mind. You know what? Many people today think that Christians are crazy for being transformed by Christ. But this text tells us that we are sane and everyone else is nuts. <laughs> Okay, here's the thing that we learn from this sudden and complete transformation of this demon-possessed man. Jesus can deliver you from anything. Okay, whether it is the loathsome past that you have lived or the, the present sins that you are living in or, or maybe it's your hatred or fear or prejudice Whatever it is, Jesus will not just save your soul. He can restore your marriage. He can rid your mind of evil desires. He, he can cause you to find peace and rest. He can heal the shame of your past sins. He can even cast off demonic influences that are destroying your life today. And the only thing that will stop him is if you tell him to leave, like these townspeople did. If you tell him to leave you alone, he probably will. He'll probably give you what you want. Or, or, or you could be like this, this man, this demonized man who, who flung himself at the feet of Jesus. He came towards Jesus, not away from him. And the result was a display of the incredible power and authority of Christ to heal. And boy, did he have a story to tell. But I want to uh, take a moment and, and ponder just one word from verse 19. 
Here Jesus tells the man after he, he wanted to go with Jesus on the boat and follow him around. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you, how he and how he has had mercy on you. You see, this word mercy gets at the heart of Jesus' ministry and ultimately the entire reason he lived, died, and rose again. This word mercy has this sense of compassion and a heart-level aching for someone. It most often shows up in the Gospels when we see people who, who, who see Jesus walk by and they yell at him, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. It is this sense of distress and of a compassionate response that really defines mercy. Now, I've, I think I've felt um, and understood what mercy is most clearly from um, my two daughters. So I have a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Annabelle, and a one, well, next, on Friday, my daughter Ainsley will be one years old, so we made it through a year. Um, the first year is a big one. So, hey, yeah, there we go. Um, now, my daughter Annabelle, the older one, she, uh, a number of months ago, had a high fever and woke up in the middle of the night just drenched in sweat, was like incoherent, was crying. And I watched my little three-year-old girl in agony with this fever. And I felt this overwhelming sense that I wanted desperately to help her. I felt a, a, a movement in my heart or soul, this, this movement of, of compassion to the point where it hurt to watch her because I so desperately wanted to change the state she was in out of the love that I have for her. That's the heart of mercy. And you know what? Verse 19 says that God had mercy on this man. When everyone else didn't want to be near this guy, he's isolated. God had mercy on him. This is profound, okay? Here's why. God has eternally existed apart from the created order. He is self-sufficient, and he didn't need to create anything, but he did. He did so out of his benevolent will and of his love and his character, an outpouring of who he is. He wanted creatures, human beings like you and me, that would bear his image and would bring him glory by administering his creation on his behalf and returning the love to him that he shows us. But the first people he made turned their backs on God. And you know what? God had every right to destroy them immediately. But he didn't. He, he, he showed them mercy. He did not give them what they deserved. You see, foundational to God's character, and indeed his plan for all of salvation history, is that he is kind and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Don't miss this, friends. God actually loves you. 
He looks down on you. He looks down on your misery and your distress and has compassion and and an aching in his heart for you to be healed. And he made that possible through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus alone has the power and the authority to free you, to, to heal you and to bring you peace. All of the power of uh, of evil in the spiritual realm is subject to him. It grovels at his feet. And Jesus simply wants you to come back home. To live as God's adopted child, to be fully submitted to his lordship. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Friends, be like this man who in his torment and his distress and in the evil that was gripping his life flung himself at the feet of Jesus and begged to be healed because Jesus wants to put the mercy of God on display in you. And that's really the heart of why we see Jesus tell this man to go proclaim what had happened. In the Decapolis, okay, the ten cities, that's what they were called, the Decapolis. There was these ten Greek cities to the east of Israel. And everyone who heard the story that this man told marveled at the authority of Jesus and God's mercy. And this is exactly what I desire for us. Friends, I think we need to reframe or rethink how we we describe the gospel transformation in our lives. I think too often we talk about what Jesus has done for us in terms that make us the center of the story. It's like we want people to marvel at us and get excited about how we are different people. We like to list the benefits of what Jesus has done in our lives and tell stories about how the gospel made us feel better. But what if we framed the transformation that has happened in our lives in light of the authority of Jesus and God's mercy on us? How would that change how you tell your testimony? What if we increasingly lifted up the power and authority of Jesus in our testimonies? What if we, we told people more about how marvelous it is that God is merciful How different would our stories be if we put Jesus at the center of our testimony? Because here's the reality. If you have been healed, if, if you have been freed, or if you've been transformed by Christ, then you are a, a living, breathing display of the power and authority of Jesus because he's the one who did it. And you are a a, a walking and talking demonstration of the mercy of God. Go tell that story. Find Find a friend who will listen to you explain how God had mercy. He didn't have to. Tell someone how you have been healed and transformed and how Jesus has conquered evil in your life. Make the world marvel at Jesus. 
But if, if maybe you're in a place today where you need to be healed, where you need to be freed from the power of evil in your life or, 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 or you need to receive prayer. During our, our time of communion that we're going to have in a few moments, we're going to have a number of people from our prayer team up front. Um, come forward if you want to be prayed for, to receive deliverance. Because when we pray for each other in the name and the power and the authority of Jesus, it doesn't matter what is going on in your life. It doesn't matter what evil is there. It will fall to the feet of Jesus in submission to him because he is Lord. We learned in this passage that thousands of demons cower in fear at the foot of Jesus. There is nothing that you are going through today that Jesus cannot heal or that is too difficult for him. Bring your request to him. Let God put his mercy on display. Let's pray. Lord, we so desperately need your presence. In your mercy, we are incredibly grateful, Lord God, that in the person and work of Christ, the power and authority that you have over evil is so clearly shown, and the mercy that you have, that, that heart-level aching for us to be healed, is put on display, God. And, and as we are changed and transformed utterly, it is a, a, a witness to the gospel, and to the glory of God. That, that as the image of God is, is, is restored and we live for God's glory, the name of Jesus is what we marvel at. Heal us this morning, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.